Please pray with me. Mighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now. The scripture has been read as your word is here proclaimed. We might hear with ready ears and receive with joyful hearts what you say to us this day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I first had the privilege of preaching on this morning's gospel reading in January 2011. I was in Malawi in Southeast Africa on a seminary mission trip. And what stood out to me reading the scripture in that context was the deep fundamental significance of hospitality. Anywhere we went in Malawi, all we had to do was walk into someone's front room. Sometimes we didn't even make it that far. And even if that front room wasn't much bigger than some of y'all's walk-in closets, it was always lined with chairs to welcome guests. They always offered us tea or Coke and Fanta, something to eat. We say in our country, make yourself at home. Their phrase was, feel free, feel free. Be comfortable, have what you need. And reading this text, in that context, I started to appreciate what it might mean in a culture that prioritizes and values hospitality that deeply to run out of wine at a wedding feast. It's not just a matter for social embarrassment. It would be that for us, I think. Uh, failure of planning of some kind. But more basically, the shame of a failure to provide adequately for guests. This is a major familial and communal celebration. You want everyone present to feel free, to have whatever they need, in order to participate fully in the joy and the blessing that this marriage represents. But someone back in the kitchen is freaking out right now because they have no wine. We can't say for sure how the mother of Jesus becomes aware of this disastrous failure of the wine supply. Maybe she's just been paying extra close attention. She is a mother. Quite possibly, though, she's here helping put on the event in some capacity. You notice how scripture sets this up. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Jesus is invited. His mother is there. She's there already. Some interpreters suggest she may have been a member of the extended family, which would make Jesus a relative too, of course. That, that seems quite possible. But however it happens, there's no hint that the master of the feast has heard yet that the wine has run out, but the mother of Jesus knows. And she tells her son, which on a practical level is a little strange. It's in no way clear what she expects him to do about this. You want me to make a shopping run, mom? Like, what? You know how much that's going to cost? Jesus is not wealthy. We can gather based on his response that she expects him to do something, but there's no reason to think she expects a miracle. 
or even imagines that as a possibility. She's seen miracles enough surrounding his birth, but John tells us this was the first of Jesus' signs that he performed. So at one level, her approach to her son seems rather obscure, but only at one level, because I don't know if you noticed how she's identified throughout this passage. Not by name, not as Mary. She's always the mother of Jesus. And in fact, this is true throughout John's gospel. Because for the gospel writer, this relationship tells us what we need to know about who this woman is, or at least who she's come to be in relation to her son. She sees a problem, she has a concern, and she brings it to him. Not just because she has a particular solution in mind, although that may be true, but for the sake of relationship, because she's his mother, because he's her son, because she knows Jesus. They have no wine. Jesus responds, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, just so we're clear, addressing her as woman doesn't have a harsher kind of distancing connotation, which it might in English. This is the same way Jesus addresses her from the cross when he's commending her to the beloved disciples' care. Woman, behold your son. This answer is in no way disrespectful or hostile. It's also not encouraging. What does that have to do with me? Why are you telling me this? That's the question we were asking also. Whatever she's asking him to do, sounds like that's probably a no. But then Jesus adds something really interesting and perhaps unexpected. My hour has not yet come. In John's gospel, when Jesus talks about his hour, this always means the hour of his passion and exaltation, being lifted high upon the cross and through his death and resurrection, revealing his divine glory. In chapter 7 and again in chapter 8, his enemies are unable to seize him because it says his hour had not yet come. Only in chapter 12, in the midst of Holy Week, does Jesus finally say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he starts talking about a grain of wheat being sown in the ground, dying, and so bearing fruit. And he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. All his mother said was, they have no wine. But Jesus' answer suggests that something more is happening here than just a breakdown of a social event or even a painful failure of hospitality. Somehow her question points toward his purpose, what Jesus has ultimately come to accomplish. How much of that Mary understands, it would be hard to say. But her response is absolutely perfect. And I love this. She doesn't say anything else to Jesus at all. Instead, she turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. And then the text doesn't say this, but I imagine she probably turns and leaves. I mean, she's got stuff to do. And again, this tells us so much about her relationship with her son. Because on the one hand, this is an act of absolute trust. 
She doesn't get upset. She doesn't argue. She doesn't start expressing her anxiety about what might happen if he doesn't do something about this or doesn't act right away. She doesn't try to micromanage or instruct him how to solve the problem. She tells him and she trusts him to know and do what needs to be done. It's as simple as that. And yet, if her answer is an act of absolute trust, she's also absolutely confident that he's going to do something, even if she has no idea what. St. Thomas Aquinas says, although his mother was refused, she did not lose hope in her son's mercy. In fact, she kind of puts him on the spot. Do whatever he tells you. Well, he's got to do something now. Classic mom move. And yet, what she's telling these servants, in effect, is that they can trust Jesus too. He knows what he's doing and he'll take care of it. Do whatever he tells you. What he tells them is fill these jars with water. Not a small task that's well over 100 gallons. And you imagine these servants probably have other tasks to deal with as well. It's also 0% obvious how filling stone jars with water is supposed to address a wine shortage. But they do whatever he tells them. And they don't do it half-heartedly. It says they fill the jars to the brim. Now he says, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now Jesus is putting them on the spot. You hand the master of the feast a dipper full of water, he's liable to have some questions, starting with, why on earth are you handing me this dipper full of water? But again, they do whatever he tells them. And somewhere between filling those jars and that first sip, the water is transformed. John doesn't tell us how the transformation takes place. We experience it alongside the characters. Notice how he holds back the moment of realization. Jesus says, fill the jars with water. They fill them to the brim. Now take a dipper to the master of the feast. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Whoa, 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 hold up. When did that happen? He doesn't tell us. In a sense, he almost downplays the moment of the miracle. There's a kind of dramatic postponement here, but this is also about the most casual way you could tell us that it happened. And I think that's intentional. Because for John, Jesus' miracles always point beyond themselves. It's a sign. It's a manifestation of his glory. Something about what's happening here points to his purpose and what Jesus has ultimately come to accomplish. When the master of the feast tastes this wine, he immediately calls over the bridegroom. Where's this stuff been all this time? Everybody serves the best wine first. What are you doing, man? He seems to assume that it's the bridegroom's responsibility to provide wine for the guests. And here's the thing. He's not wrong. He just doesn't know, and the groom himself doesn't know, that someone on the invitation list is also a bridegroom. At the end of the next chapter, some of John the baptizer's followers are going to come to him and say, 
Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And here's what part of John says in response. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In Matthew's gospel, someone asked Jesus why his disciples aren't fasting. And he answers with a question, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? When Jesus provides the wine for this wedding, it's a sign. It's pointing all the way back to God's promise to his chosen people. We heard this in our reading from Isaiah 62, that one day God would take away their reproach, that one day they would no longer feel alone or bereft or abandoned or forgotten. You shall no more be called forsaken, the Lord says. and Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is what God's people have been waiting for. This is what John's disciples and Jesus' disciples are hoping for. Renewal, restoration. When they're baptized in the River Jordan, people remember Israel's history, passing through these waters and entering into the land of promise. Of course, there's also something mysterious about that final verse from our Isaiah reading. It's not clear what it might mean for your sons to marry you, and yet the one who rejoices over you like a bridegroom is God himself. Or at least it's not clear unless God himself comes among them as the true son of the daughter of Israel. When Jesus performs this miracle at the wedding feast at Cana, it's a sign. Jesus isn't just a bridegroom. He's the bridegroom, the one who made and has come to fulfill all those divine promises, the one who established and has come to complete that divine covenant. The law of Moses commanded washings and purifications. That's why these jars are here. And the law is good. But now Jesus is filling up the vessels of those commandments written on stone with the abundant grace of a new covenant, a covenant sealed with his own blood and written on the hearts of all those who believe. What was empty is being replenished. What had grown old is being made new. The water of purification is being transformed into the wine of abundant gladness. The master of the feast doesn't know where the wine came from, but the servants know. The ones who have heard and taken to heart these words of Jesus' mother, which are in fact the last recorded words of Jesus' mother in any of the Gospels. Do whatever he tells you. 
trust that manifests as obedience. That's what the sign is for. That's the response it's meant to bring about. Verse 12, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And what? His disciples believed in him. They trusted and followed, even though they didn't know yet what he was going to do. Because you see this sign that points backward to God's promise in the law and the prophets also points forward to the fullness of that promise and what Jesus is here to accomplish. Not just in his exaltation on the cross, but in the resurrection as well. I think there's a subtle hint toward that connection at the very start of today's reading. Did you catch this detail? On the third day, there was a wedding. On the third day, where have I heard that before? We don't understand fully until we read the rest of the gospel, but the third day, that's the day when all the promises are fulfilled. When sorrow is turned to laughter and tears are turned to joy and the celebration finally starts. And here's the point, that end, that fulfillment, everything being brought to its completion and conclusion is already present even here at the beginning because Jesus is here. In the very last chapter of John's gospel, Jesus will once again meet his disciples on the shore of Lake Galilee and prepare a meal of bread and fish and invite them to sit and eat. But here at the start of John's gospel, that same Jesus has already prepared for those who love him a feast of rich and well-aged wine, new wine that's also the best wine, Aged wine well refined in abundance. This is, after all, a story about hospitality. But as he so often does, Jesus takes the story we thought we were in and turns it upside down. Because the one we thought we were inviting and making space for and welcoming as a guest turns out to be the host the bridegroom, the giver of the banquet. And he's inviting us to trust him, to do whatever he tells us, to witness these signs of glory and in response to sit down and taste what he gives. The good wine, the promise and the joy coming at the end of the story, but but not just at the end of the story. Here and now, already present in Jesus. Because Jesus is here. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.